The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly guest Dharma series. It's good to be here with you all. Just got back from a retreat, so I haven't seen my community spaces in a month. Get you going.
And then the conditions might shift, and awareness might know something else. Or the breath might be in the foreground, and other experience might be in the background. Or the breath might be in the background, and other experience might be in the foreground. The So I practice in both ways. I started my practice doing more directed, doing exclusively directed practice, and then have shifted over the last few years and have done more almost exclusively non-directed practice. And so I've worked with the breath in both ways. And at this point, the breath is really a wonderful tool to know the mind. There's so much variability in the breath depending on what's going on in the heart and mind. So for example, the sometimes noticing the breath kind of gives me a clue if there's tension in the mind. It gives me a clue that there might be an emotional state present that I'm not aware of. Sometimes the breath, the breath is really rugged. Sometimes it's really smooth. Sometimes it's deep or shallow. But none of it has to be a problem. It's just an experience being known. Right? That points us back to the to the mind and the relationship. The mind knowing the breath is the relationship to the breath. In both, I was reading the article that Mark sent out or the book. Ajahn Sumedho, and also remembering some of the things that I have heard Sayadaw Tejaniya say or read from him. And it really seemed like they were saying such similar things, but in very different ways of practicing. But pointing us back to the attitude of mind again and again. Early on in my practice with this not with this directed style of directing the attention to the breath and bringing it back to the breath when it wandered away. I missed so much of the striving in that practice. I missed so much the wanting to get somewhere, wanting to be a good yogi, wanting to be good at this, and the kind of forcefulness of no, not that, this, Right? No, not any other experience, this. No, not thinking, the breath, again and again and again. Until I started practicing a little bit differently, then I started to see all that. Like, oh, there's so much striving in the mind. There's so much trying, so much wanting, so much craving in the mind. And now, I can practice directed style if, if that feels like that's what's indicated. They're both really good tools. So it's a matter of knowing the mind and the conditions and what would be more useful. So sometimes I'll start out with holding the attention on the breath for a little while until it feels like the mind has some stability and then practice non-directed. And sometimes if the mind is really busy with a lot of thinking and it is having a hard time landing, then I might take a few mindful breaths to gain a little stability and then go back to non-directed style practice. But they're all in the service of 
either style is in the service of really knowing or developing, cultivating wisdom. And that can be that can be cultivated. Wisdom can be cultivated just by this moment to moment noticing again and again and again. And so much of that is noticing the attitude. The attitude that we're practicing with in my case, it's been a lot of striving. But it doesn't have to it's not the only attitude that's available to me now. There could be any flavor of greed, aversion, or delusion in one, and all all of its various manifestations. So I wanted to read a couple of things just to kind of point out that these two styles aren't that far apart. Sayabhutajaniya says, check the way you're meditating. Are you comfortable and alert? Do you want something out of practice? If you are looking for a result or want something to happen, you will only tire yourself out. It is so important to know whether you are feeling tense or relaxed. Whether tense or relaxed, observe how you are feeling. Observe the reactions. So everything is something that you notice. When you are relaxed, it is much easier to be aware. Not so much effort is required, and it becomes an enjoyable, pleasant, and interesting experience. Beside us, really pointing to this, um, our job as meditators is really to find a way to keep the mind balanced and to stay relaxed with whatever is in our experience. Even if the mind is lost in thought again and again and again, it's possible, I know this, it's possible to relax with even that. Even if the mind is caught up in some drama or a lot of intense emotion, I know this, it is possible to relax with even that. And seeing this happen again and again. And then from Ajahn Sumedho, when the mind wanders, we get upset and discouraged, negative and averse to the whole thing. If out of frustration, we try by sheer will to force the mind to be tranquil. We can only keep it up for a short while, and then the mind is off somewhere else. So the right attitude to Anapanasanti is being very patient, having all the time in the world. And then he goes on to say, be relaxed and at ease without the pressure of having to achieve anything special, nothing to attain, no big deal, nothing special. He says, we're not battling forces of evil. If you feel averse to Anapanasati, then note that too. Same thing. Similar different ways of practicing, different ways of talking about this cultivating an attitude that is okay with the way things are, no matter how things are even if they're unpleasant, even if there's this attitude in the mind that is saying, you're not good enough, you're not doing this well enough, even that can be known. So nothing is off the, nothing is off limits. Or awareness. Awareness can know anything. Everything is workable. Okay. Um, yeah, most of my reflections 
my personal reflections, you know, over the week, taking on the practice of uh, Anapatsati a little more intentionally. And, uh, yeah, the, the main sort of learning or what seemed to come forth was that it, it does seem to be an advanced practice, at least for me. And, you know, there's different personalities and different people have more facility with directed, with directing their minds. Um, I've heard. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but, but yeah, just really getting that point that, you know, in a way this practice starts, you know, the very first instruction in the sutta is establish mindfulness to the forefront knowing breathing in, knowing breathing out. And there's no mention of the hindrances. So, so I found that interesting and, and, and actually not, um, not discouraging, even though, because I was being very honest, you know, I had my intention, you know, you know I value mindfulness, and there's this, you know, these instructions nicely laid out, okay, you know, do this feeling pretty good, like having a good attitude about it. And I sit down with that intention, and the hindrances arise. And that's just natural. Um, for a mind like mine that is still on that level of working with the hindrances and, and finding different ways of working with them and how they work. And um, so I found that really interesting. Like it just you know, obviously, it's not news to me that the hindrances are, you know, are the hindrances. And, but in the context of a practice that sort of, in some ways, assumes some facility with that, it just sort of um, made that uh, even preliminary practice or instruction or implied instruction just highlighted that like, oh yeah, like samadhi or, you know, collectiveness of mind is what happens when the hindrances, when there's some wisdom or some facility with working with the hindrances and they're temporarily set aside. And uh, from the Satipatthana Sutta, just this simple phrase, I think it's at uh, part of the refrain in the Satipatthana Sutta, so it's mentioned many times, you know, and again, this is sort of like the preliminary, in a practice, you sit down, and like in the Anapanasati Sutta, it's putting, uh, or sorry, uh, bringing mindfulness to the forefront. So I kind of like, you know, just thinking about that, like the Buddha's giving these instructions, and in some of them, I think in the Satipatthana Sutta, it even says, like, go find a quiet place, sit under a tree, or whatever. So it's, you know, he's really walking us through, and then bring forward that intention, bring mindfulness to the forefront. And in the Satipatthana Sutta, that, there's that phrase, putting aside desire and discontent in regard to the world. And that's it. <laughs> like, just do that. But, you know, it's a profound instruction. And that that's actually what's 
required to really, you know, to really be mindful. The mindfulness I've been reflecting as I've been reading more Bikonalio's texts and just, uh, that, yeah, just, you know, the word is part of different contexts other than Buddhism these days. It's being popularized and so we can, you know, think that mindfulness is just being aware, just paying attention, but it's paying attention in a certain way, in a skillful way, putting aside desires and discontent in order to be with our experience in this very real way that isn't being as pushed around by the hindrances. And I think there's different ways of working with the hindrances, but um, but just with uh, how it worked for me in, in this one sit I'm sort of reflecting on here. It probably took me half an hour of just sitting with that attention, bringing mindfulness to the forefront, and just having uh, patience and... and uh, Yeah, and just a lot of different thoughts and, and the hindrances, you know, sensual desire, ill will, restlessness and worry, sloth and torpor, doubt. And it, there was just some learning there of like how natural it is if my mind is invested in and spending time dwelling in my daily life, when I sit down, that's what's going to arise. So it was very natural. The mind saw it as very natural, and you know there might be other ways of working with it. But since I've, I've been practicing more in the side Avatajaniya style, where there's a lot of emphasis on just awareness and wisdom, not making a problem, happy to be mindful no matter what I'm mindful of. So there was that attitude, and it is very interesting to have that very honest appreciation of hindrances, but also that they gradually, over probably half an hour, settled down a little, because I I was noticing that they were suffering, and I wasn't uh, feeding them, I wasn't hating them, I was actually kind of interested. Wow, this is not easy. Like, this is just the natural result of, of this mind. And, and it's so interesting, like, I think this is part of just valuing Samadhi. Like, we have to actually value peace and actually value a mind that is free of desire and discontent in the world. I mean, even just that, to say that, like, is that what we really value? Do we actually value a mind that is free of desire and discontent in regard to the world? Because if we're living our lives pursuing desire and discontent in regard to the world, you know, complaining and pursuing and all day long, that's the preliminary instruction for this practice. But, you know, we don't have to hate it. It's just being really honest. And then, in my experience, it was very... It was very... Uh, there was confidence that... That, that, that that's the first step. The hindrances and their and that it is possible for them to fall away just naturally when the mind is appreciating 
peace. And then, maybe after half an hour, there was actually a little more interest in mindfulness, like that value of bringing mindfulness to the forefront. It, it was really more about that value being higher in my mind than all the other values that were feeding the hindrances. So it was very, just this natural, the mind just, wisdom, just discerning moment after moment, where do I want to put my attention? And that natural falling away, because we're always following the thread of pleasure in this practice, specifically when we're talking about samadhi and just the, the, the pleasure of seclusion. And then it's just, then the next steps, you know, that's just step zero in Anapanasati, but then the next steps are just a further refinement of that. Okay, so you've established you're actually interested in mindfulness enough to put aside desire and discontent. So prove it. Like, just be interested in something as ordinary as breathing. Why not? What's the harm in it? And, And it's not like it's about breathing. It's about seclusion from the hindrances, and we're grateful to have anything, and the breath is there, moment by moment. So it's not a war, it's uh, it was actually an investigation, we're curious about the pleasure, the happiness that could come from seclusion, and why not? seclude the mind by giving itself, by just knowing, breathing in, breathing out, and then we see all the hindrances that don't want to do that, but that's fine, that's interesting, and then it just refines further, you know, we, we just, and we check further, well, Because we can think we're being mindful, but so I see the next step is sort of checking if the mind is really willing to drop things enough to know, like, okay, you're mindful of breathing, okay, I'm mindful of breathing, fine. But if you're really mindful of breathing, you would know you know, this boring thing, whatever. But you would, but you're with it, so you would know about it. It's not like it's that interesting to know whether it's long or short, or, but it's just sort of a, a test that the mind is setting aside desire and discontent. And so it's fine to be with this experience. It's just a neutral experience for most of us. And just naturally awareness knows the qualities of that, whether it's long or short. Not that we have to think about that. I don't think that's the point. I think it's just, it's the way I interpret it is as sort of a test of continuity of mindfulness. If we're not there moment by moment, we wouldn't know the qualities. So I see those two as I'll probably spend the rest of the course on just that. I mean, who knows? But uh, continuity of mindfulness, that's a lot to ask for most of us. (laughs) And then, sort of, you know, with enough continuity, 
where there's some more stability and just um, presence and clarity around being secluded. Then I see the next step, experiencing the whole body. We're taking sort of that concentration and we're relaxing with it. Like we, you know, we gathered it enough that now we can sort of, we don't have to hold it as tightly. We can kind of invite it to suffuse the whole body. So we're sort of inviting a more fully embodied and pervasive. The tension is less on on the object and more on the seclusion <coughs> and experiencing it in the whole body. Like this, the seclusion is nice, but I don't have to protect it as closely. I can, I can experience, I can invite it into a wider container. That's how I, my limited experience found it useful to, to reflect in that way. And then the calming is just the fourth step is just a further refinement of that, appreciating that the whole body can calm with that. I started reflecting a little bit on, you know, just this value on peace and seclusion and just having a mind that that's more peaceful. Um, yeah, and we all want that. But do we really value it? Do we appreciate it? Do we invest in it? Do we put time into it? Do we live our lives, you know, in ways that support it in terms of, you know, traditionally living with uh, a commitment to non-harming really helps having a peaceful mind. There's a traditional list of commitment to non-harming leads to non-remorse, leads to happiness, leads to samadhi. And I love that. Happiness leads to samadhi. And samadhi leads to wisdom. I was reading a little bit of Joseph Goldstein's book, um, Mindfulness, and uh, I think that he just says it, it takes time. And that's sort of what, another thing I appreciated in that little sit, like half an hour for the hindrances to sort of settle down. That's an investment of time. But I appreciated it. Yeah, to me, I mean, this respect for and appreciation for for samadhi, for calm, and it's different than wanting it. Um, yeah, you know, we can have a lot of baggage around you know, not being a calm person, wanting to be calm, and the emphasis on calm. So I don't think it's about judgment or wanting or (laughs) 
But holding open that possibility for us, no matter who we are, no matter how our minds are, we think we have the busiest mind in the world. I actually remember saying that when I was like 13. I don't think anyone has a busier mind than me. I didn't meditate yet, but I just recognized how wild my mind was, how caught up it was. That's what's beautiful. It's like it's a natural process, this settling. And we won't investigate it and see if it's possible if we don't at least hold open that possibility and, and that it's a beautiful thing, appreciate it. And it's just following the natural inclination of the mind towards pleasure. And not warring, not making it to a war. That seems to be the biggest thing that, that I've learned. It's like, it's just natural. When you don't create war, there's more peace. So I'll leave it there. Turn it over to Ramesh for his thoughts. So we have two options. Um, we heard a lot from Shelley and Gay. And this is such a core part of a lot of mindfulness practice that um, we have about 10 minutes. Um, so we can either open up to questions for 10 minutes and we can take uh, in turn. Or uh, if you're hungry for some more talk, I'm going to give you a small piece. So let me just show of hands. I mean, a lot of questions may have come up already. I want to be sure that you have time to uh, get them answered. You ready for Q&A? <laughs> 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 yeah. 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 More talk. More talk. More talk? I like it. Do I watch you ask for? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so I'll try and talk for about five minutes and leave about ten minutes for questions. Um, so what I wanted to share with you was the problems I've had with um, practicing mindfulness of breathing. So I, I've been drifting into meditation practice for the better part of 25 years, but I can say with some confidence that I've done it consistently just for the last maybe 13, 14 years. First of all, I'm just showing off here. Secondly, it's also to point out that the first seven, eight years of repeatedly picking up a book and reading the instructions on mindfulness of breathing got me nowhere. And it was only after five, six years of doing practice here that I realized what was going on. So that's what I wanted to share with you about. So the first thing is, uh, believe it or not, 15, 20 years ago, um, breathing was it. If you opened a book, any book, all they said was breathing. And but for a teacher called Shinzen Young, I would still have been stuck in the same, try the breathing, it doesn't work, I get tight, and then I give up. And somewhere along the way, I attributed some of my challenges to my childhood asthma. So I had asthma from when I was 12 until about 25, 26. And even though um, when I started meditation practice, I was well into my you know late 30s, 40s, uh, the sensation that I felt was similar to the beginnings of an asthma attack. So, and then when I reflected and read about it, you know, as uh, those of you who had asthma, it's an intensely mindful state of your breathing, except it's a very negative state. When you think you're going to die, you are desperate to catch a breath. And then now, as an adult, when you deliberately go to the breath, there is a kind of reflexive condition habit of tightening that happens. So it's not an asthma as much as just a tightening. And for me, that was enough to give up. 
And sometimes it would last for several days until it would subside. And like a fool, I would try and come back again. So, and then I would just, you know, follow the wagon for many weeks and months until I picked up another book. And this person would say, focus on the nostrils. Another person would say, focus on the throat or the abdomen. But it's all breathing. Thank God we know that. The other um, kind of category of folks who may have some difficulties, those who are prone to having anxiety episodes. In either clinical anxiety, panic attacks, narcotic anxiety, uh, because, you know, those of us even who have not had any anxiety, clinical anxiety, have had times of feeling anxious out of stress, and you know how closely breathing is related to anxiety and stress. So for those of us who are prone to anxiety states, when you try to focus on your breathing, boom, you know, it can trigger an anxiety episode. Or at least it can trigger, it can leave you in a state of high, kind of heightened arousal as opposed to your thinking of, you know, it needs to be calming you down. So those are just two examples. I'm sure there are other settings as well. And so, um, and I'll share with you a couple of um, strategies that work for me. Uh, but what I would implore you is to, you know, just study your body. You know, this is not about something that worked for me is going to work for you. But this is more a, a, an example of, hey, if that worked for him, I wonder what will work for me. So, um, how many of you do body scan meditation? Quite a few, yeah. So, so one commonality I talk about hindrances for me is, um, consistent with mindfulness meditation is sleep. And so, when I tried breathing, even on a day when my breath didn't tighten up, there was a sense of, why am I doing it? So boring, and then drowsiness. And same with body scan meditation. You know, I followed John Kabat-Zinn, I would start here, by the time I got to my neck, I was drowsy. <laughs> so, there was, but I had to give it some, some zing, something to correlate with. And one consistent observation for many of us is that it's easier to relax. It's easier for the muscles to just kind of spontaneously let go with exhalation. So when John Kabat-Zinn says, you know, connect with different parts of the body and then let go, I never understood what it meant by letting go. Because every time I connected to a body, I was actually grabbing it. But I had to have a mechanism for letting go, and that mechanism was the awareness of exhalation. So in the background was, yeah, there is this body breathing, but as I'm connecting to the forehead, and there is this, you know, muscles are always tight here, with the exhalation, it's easier to let go. And the same with the neck, the shoulder, the back. And the, the advantage there was, I was now connecting with a pleasant experience of certain parts of my body spontaneously relaxing. So when I tried to relax and let go, it never worked. It's an oxymoronic thing. You can't try to relax. Relaxation just happens. Uh, but when I made it, you know, the rhythmic with the breathing, but really not focusing on the breath at all, I would say every fourth or fifth breath, I would be aware of the exhalation, and then I could feel the body settling down. So that's one way I found I could peripherally be aware of the rhythm of the breathing, and then I could um, also do the body scan meditation without sleeping, because what I was eventually connecting gradually as the scan went, kept going down was the sense of relaxation, sense of ease in the body, except in the neck and you know some parts of the body that retain a lot of tension. Um, the other um, strategy, and this is for folks who have done meditation for a little bit, 
because this is the stage of practice where you're comfortable working with some potent emotions. So um, the kind of the way I you know I I train and I, I practice it is on a good day when things are going well, I um, after maybe five, ten minutes of just relaxing meditation, I bring to mind certain situation that is predictable that can predictably uh evoke some strong emotions. Could be anger, could be, you know, take your pick. And then, you know, I'm nothing too strong, but something sufficient enough to for me to, you know, feel quite strongly. And then I would uh, marinate in that thought, that scenario for a few minutes, and then drop that scenario and then just connect to the anger in the body. So, and then drop the label and then come back to anger. What I realized as I was working through this is how often I stop breathing. I mean, that was the power of some of these emotions is that they come, they grip you literally, and then how irregular my breathing was. And so one of the ways I found to work with these emotions was to, again, this is the way connecting the emotion that, you know, I can feel anger and all over my body, but especially in my belly area, in my neck. And so it's so difficult to let go of anger, but I found I can remind myself to breathe again. And in the process of breathing, I suddenly, when I went back to the body, the anger, the, the, the bodily tension associated with anger was just a tad less. And so, as Shelley was saying earlier, it's that kind of, I'm aware of the breathing without being aware of the breathing, without focusing on the breathing. But I'm giving it, giving the mind something more substantial to focus on, and in this state it is a, some kind of emotion. And it's, what amazed me and continues to amaze me is how often in strong states of emotion, and I'm not talking raging states, I'm just talking about, you know, I may, as I drove here from St. Paul, I may have encountered a traffic situation that got me going. That's all I have to do is bring that up. Or something in embarrassing that I did at work last week. Just, you know, just subtle. And then you realize that in the process of gripping that anger, or that, that embarrassment, you start breathing. And how irregular it becomes. So then you restore a regular pattern, but then not focusing on the breath, go back to the anger that is the emotion. And then, oh, oh, having said that, um, um, some teachers have talked about synchronizing walking and breathing during walking meditation. Um, I tried that, it didn't work for me. Too many objects for me to work on, but apparently it does work well, uh, especially, again, if you're in a state of emotion or if if you have a particularly busy day and your mind is racing too much, then you can pace your steps in synchrony with your breathing, and that way the body slows down the breathing, the breathing calms the mind, and it's a, I promise I'm done. <laughs> so a question for Ramesh, first based on what you were just <laughs> talking about. Um, I really connected with bringing up something um, as an object, you were talking about something maybe traffic or something that might induce some type of anger. Um, I would like you to expand on that by explaining what the purpose of that process is. Like, does it help you just be more aware of what happens with your breathing and what happens with your body when you experience an angry thought? Or do you find that 
putting that into your meditation actually helps um, helps you with that anger. I think we're out of time. <laughs> I'm trying to be as brief as I can because this is a whole uh, whole topic, and don't ask a psychiatrist to give a talk on a whole topic. <laughs> um, so, as um, Gabe was saying, the four foundations of mindfulness. The second foundation is well, the Vedana or the feeling tone. Now, so the sequence of events, at least as I understand it, is there is a, a trigger that happens outside in the environment. We perceive the trigger as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral and then we react to it. What happens in, for me at least in daily life, is there is a trigger, I have a feeling tone that I'm not even aware of, but I'm reacting to the feeling tone. So there's a jackass on the freeway, and I'm sorry, there's a jackass on the freeway, doesn't know how to drive, that's the stimulus, I have an aversion to it, period. I don't need to know why, but I've gone off because I'm aversive to that unpleasant feeling. I connect, I go off into a story about solving the problem of the man who doesn't know how to drive, as opposed to the reality of what's happening here, which is the aversion to a an environmental phenomenon. This is how it is. So as I'm driving, the problem is not the bad driver, but that there are drivers who happen to be bad whom I'm aversive to. But the traffic is, in, I mean, I've been practicing in traffic for a while, so it took a little bit, but the way you get there is by bringing traffic here. Because if you, if you start practicing there, you may just connect your rage. But if you bring it here, then it's a safe, protected environment, and then you can see that thought leading to the diversion, leading to reaction. The reason I brought in breath is, as I, I was practicing the last couple of years, I write, one of the observations was that I forget to breathe. Or I breathe and get a sputters and stops. But this, it's a whole separate practice, and I don't think the rest of my life I'm going to get beyond Vedana because, boy, a lot of things annoy me. <laughs> this talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.